Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. Nate Antitomaso and Evan Knowles. This week we have another person here. We have our new producer, Logan Jones. How you doing, my man? I'm good, man. It was uh, pretty cool to listen in. Yeah, yeah, we just recorded this episode that we'll get into here in a second, but we had you listen in and we, we have you fully on board the team now. We're excited to have a producer. Yeah, super excited to be helping you guys out. I feel like we're getting legit. We have a producer that just, that feels like really cool to say. Absolutely. <laughs> so like, tell tell everybody a little bit about yourself, why you're here, where you're from, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so uh, born and raised in Kentucky, uh, born in Ashland, Kentucky, and then just graduated school up here at UK. So I think that's the thing that I was most excited about joining Middle Tech was just how passionate I am about Kentucky and then entrepreneurship as well. So I feel like Middle Tech is just a real good uh, crossroads between those two things. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on board and we know you're just going to bring so much value to the cause. So everybody stay tuned. You'll be hearing a lot more from Logan going forward. So before Evan jumps into what this episode is about that we just recorded. Just once again, want to thank everybody for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. It helps us move up those rankings. Visit us at middletechpod.com and like us on social at middletechpod. Logan's going to be making a lot of great content. Uh, We've already been posting a ton of content, so you can hear some nice clips from previous episodes. That's just going to keep growing. We're excited about what's coming there. So at middletechpod across everything. This week, Evan, you want to intro our guest a little bit? Yeah, so this week we had Dave Knox. So Dave was in Lexington not too long ago for an event uh, for his book, Predicting the Turn. It was kind of a panel discussion. Uh, and so I reached out to him and we connected and just kind of had a conversation. And I invited him on the podcast and he was very willing. Uh, and so, you know, you'll start to notice this more as we continue to grow the podcast is, you know, a lot of our episodes have been focused on the Lexington ecosystem because that's where, you know, our network has been. But we're going to start to branch out into some other markets like Louisville and Cincinnati. And, you know, Dave's the first, um, you know, great, great first guest to really have uh, from Lexington or from, excuse me, the, the Cincinnati space. Um, and so he he has a great background. He came up through P&G, which is a staple of Cincinnati, yeah. who, um, you know, really helped establish Cincinnati as a large market. And then he went from there to the agency space with Rockfish and eventually that got acquired by one of the biggest uh, companies in the world who continues to acquire a ton of agencies. Uh, so he had kind of an interesting uh, background as far as uh, the agency space and the corporate space and the startup space. You know, there at Rockfish, yeah. he really immersed himself in the startup space and technology space. Um, and so he used that experience to uh, get in some other ventures, one, one being his book, you know, Predicting the Turn. We we spoke uh, a pretty good amount about that book because it's it's a really important topic about how large corporations are integrating themselves into startup ecosystems around the country because they need that talent and those ideas coming out of those startups to sustain themselves. Um, and, and so it's a really great conversation. It's really exciting. It's also exciting, you know, like I said, to get more into other markets outside of Lexington. So really awesome episode. And he shared some uh, amazing perspectives and experience.
Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. Nate Antetomaso up here in Chicago. Evan Knowles down in Lexington. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm good, and we are glad today to be joined by Dave Knox. Dave, how are you? I am doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming on. Are you in Cincinnati right now? I am. I'm uh, technically across the river in good old northern Kentucky. So NKY, what town? Uh, I am in uh, Cold Spring, right Cold- by NKU's campus. Okay. That is the area of NKY that I've been in kind of the least. So there's there's stuff going on everywhere up there. Well, we'll have to change that. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go visit. We uh, we just had the, the Vivid Charts guys on in our, our last episode, and they were both from northern Kentucky. And I just feel like there's a hundred towns up there that all have kind of unique things and unique stories. No doubt. Well, having NKU up here makes it fun. We're uh, we're hosting the Governor's School for Entrepreneurship up here in a couple of weeks. So hopefully we'll be getting a lot more Kentucky residents exposed to what we've got going on up this area. For sure. And we'll, we'll have to talk a little bit about that, too, as we kind of just get into this whole episode. So if I mean, to start, you kind of just want to do a little bit of a high level overview, talk about where you're from, who you are, and then we can get into some of uh, some of these things that you've done. Yeah, for sure. Happy to do it. So, uh, you know, if you ask uh, ask either of my two kids, they'll tell you that I'm a man without a job right now because they really don't <laughs> understand uh, what entrepreneurship is at the moment. But we'll work on that. They're only six years old. They can learn. Exactly. We'll get them there. But, uh, you know, my career has kind of been in in thirds, I guess you could say, overall. So uh, first third of my career started at Procter & Gamble, was brand management there. Uh, ultimately, uh, was co-founder of the corporate digital strategy team uh, back mm-hmm. in the late, you know, around 2007, 2008, uh, which meant I got to run our relationships with Facebook and Twitter and a bunch of fun stuff like that. The next third of my life was uh, being the chief marketing officer for a digital marketing agency called Rockfish. Uh, that I opened up the Cincinnati office for those guys. Uh, grew it about uh, about 10x over the course of about five, six years. Sold that to WPP, and then simultaneous for that, uh, helped co-found the Brandery here in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. which is uh, regularly ranked as one of the top ten startup accelerators in the country. I've been in that space. It's a it's a great space. Yeah, it's a, we're lucky. We've had some fun spaces over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you know the last third is what I'm doing right now, which I left about a year and a half ago from WPP once uh, our acquisition was over. And have been doing a lot of fun stuff in the world of venture capital, advising, investing, and everything else in between. That's great. So let's talk about, let's kind of narrow in on P&G for a little bit. Talk about what it was like working at a great big uh, corporation like that. Um, talk about what you learned and, and that whole experience. Yeah. So for me, I have just uh, one of my mentors early in my career, they kind of set, instilled this belief that your 20s are for learning and your 30s are for doing. And yeah, for like me, that. the, you know, at 22, going straight into P&G was an amazing learning experience. Um, because when you go into a corporation like that, they're investing a ton of money in your training. Um, you know, you start off with an assistant brand manager college, you get promoted, you do a brand manager college. And every single month, you're doing these different trainings and development and stuff like that. So for my, me, it was a way to, in a way, get an MBA uh, without having to spend, you know, a, tens of thousands of dollars to do it. Mm-hmm. So we, awesome we love that. We we talk all the time about higher education and different experiences instead. Exactly. So that's what it was. I mean, and it, uh, you know, it's one at you know the age of twenty six when they promote me brand manager. You know, I'm down on the the Walmart customer team, and 
you know, I'm running a book of business of $900 million and a marketing budget of 21 million. Like mm-hmm. a 26 year old shouldn't get to do that. Um, but that's the training you get at one of those big companies, which is a, a pretty awesome thing. Yeah. So what was your title when you started? And then just kind of real quick, like what was your path to at 26, you know, having such an impactful position and, and why do you think you were set up to succeed in that position? Yeah. So the, uh, the path to advancement, um, you know, in terms of P&G to become a general manager and, you know, hopefully eventually CEO, et cetera, is uh, the brand management function. So mm-hmm. I came in what, you know, you hear shorthand called an ABM, um, which is an account-based marketing. It's assistant brand manager. Mm-hmm. So that's why I kind of dove into. Uh, and I had the, the very sexy, fun job at the age of 22 being the assistant brand manager for Secret Deodorant. Um, so somehow that was a good idea, but it, it, uh, it worked out well. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's why I started on. Um, and that, div- uh, brand was actually within the, uh, P and G beauty division. So was working on that. And, you know, I was on secret. A lot of my peers across what we called the bullpen were on uh, old spice. So got to work a little bit on that. Um, yeah. I mean, there are just some huge brands under that company that are just amazing to have the experience to, to learn from and to work with. Exactly. Yeah. So it was awesome to start there and kind of get that flavor. Um, and for, sure. for me, that was, uh, you know, 2003 that I did that. And, you know, you know, think about that time of period. It was uh, after the first dot com crash. And yeah. most P&G folks that were in my job were actually coming out of MBA programs. So, mm-hmm. you know, Harvard and Penn and things of that nature. And I was coming out of Miami University, you know, public school, uh, Midwest, et cetera. Yep. And so a lot of those MBAs were scared of digital because they saw friends that, you know, got job offers pulled the year before. Yep. Um, I didn't know any better. So I just kind of jumped into that. And that's what set me on the path. Yeah. Interesting. So where, for sure. Where did that path take you after P&G then? Yeah. So that path is uh, what ultimately led to joining up with Rockfish. Um, so mm-hmm. 2006, 2007, when I got sent down to the Walmart team, uh, I met an entrepreneur who had just left Walmart, a guy named Kenny Tomlin. And Kenny had started this little agency called Rockfish and mm-hmm. got to know him his first year, uh, followed his success when they did the Walmart Moms campaign, which was you know one of the so- first social media things out there. Um, then watched them get named to AdAge's uh, inaugural small agency of the year. So mm-hmm. just kept in touch with Kenny. And um, you know I was talking to him and kind of seeking his advice uh, because I knew... I was kind of at the time I decided I wanted to make a jump away from P&G and try something on my own. And Kenny said, well, why don't you come join uh, what we're building here at Rockfish and open up the Cincinnati office for us? Um, so that was the the jump I made in 2010. Yeah. Talk about, uh, you know, some of the biggest learnings you got from the agency space versus the the corporate space. Yeah. Um, you know, what's the big difference there? Yeah. So the, the biggest learning was frankly what entrepreneurship looks like. Um, you know, P&G, they taught us how to run a business and yep. massive P&Ls and everything else. But you actually really didn't own the L part of the P&L. Um, you know, it wasn't my choice to decide which office space do we buy. Do we get something that's 25 bucks a square foot or slum it for five bucks a square foot? Um, do we get the nice chairs or not do the chairs? Do yeah. you do the trip to New York? Uh, no, because you just spend your travel budget. Yeah. So jumping to the the agency world was actually a move more to jump to the entrepreneurial side than to jump to the agency side, because mm-hmm. uh, I knew I needed to learn that and develop it. 
Um, and you know, part of that was actually some guidance I got from one of your guests a few weeks ago, Wendy Lee, who's been one yep. of my mentors in life. Um, and it was Wendy who said, you know, you need to go one degree closer to where you want to be. And that anybody that jumps too many degrees ends up falling flat on their face. Mm-hmm. And so for me, making the jump to agency, I went from big company P&G to small company in Rockfish, but my clients were still big companies. So I was only one degree away that I was making that leap. Um, and if it wasn't for that, I could have never made the, you know, the moves I've made since then. Yeah, yeah. I really like that, that kind of piece of wisdom there. Yeah, yeah, Wendy's uh, about, she's one of the smartest people out there. That's for damn sure. Yeah, she was a great guest. Uh, very wise. You can always tell a difference between uh, straight intelligence and wisdom when they start telling stories. You know, parables and stories is uh, right when you can really tell that somebody's truly got wisdom. Mm-hmm. That's the they, they have the experience to to couple with the intelligence. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, it's one of the things we, uh, you know, we always said day one at Brandery when we, uh, you know, introduced startups to talk to their mentors. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, there's going to be people that give you opinions and there's going to be people that give you advice. And the ones that give advice are ones that have the experience and the wisdom and they've gone down the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't listen too much to people that just have opinions. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So talk about uh, the acquisition. Uh, what was that experience like? Um, why was the acquisition done? Um, just talk about talk about what that looked like. Yeah. So, you know, the acquisition ended up actually happening about a year and a half into me joining the company. Um, but then we proceeded to go down a five-year earnout period, uh, yep. which is pretty typical in the agency world. Um, and, you know, end of the day, holding companies are built by acquisitions. You know, yep. WPP, if you look, I think over 2014 through 17, they were the most acquisitive company in any industry ac- across the globe. Um, you know, one year, I think they bought 51 separate companies. It's wild. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of insane when you think of it that way. Yeah. Company every week. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's just how that world is built overall. Um, cause it's an acquisition of talent and it's an acquisition of relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Rockfish was one of those that we were acquired because of a few different things. One is some great client relationships with uh, Walmart and Mars and a few other really big companies that we were working with. Um, but we were also acquired because of we were part of this next wave of what a digital agency was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first wave was the guys that built websites and banner ads and all of that. And we were part of the wave where it was thinking more about digital business models, responsive design mobile not being just a marketing tool but a business tool Um, so we were bringing that capability uh to wpp as a whole so let's let's go into the brandry a bit Uh, i know you kind of did that uh you know during your time there um at rockfish kind of did them in line with each other so uh what was that experience like you know working on bringing the brandry up to speed uh while you're at rockfish and um go into you know the founding story of the brandry yeah, so the the summer of 2010 was uh, definitely a bit of a crazy time. I, I think my wife, we'd been married about a year, uh, and I'm surprised we actually made it to year two at that point because of it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, I decided to leave P&G uh, in July, you know, got official in July of 2010. Mm-hmm. And that was actually the very first month that the brandery had started as well. Um, so the, the Rockfish office was the brandery office uh, for those first few months. Uh, because a guy named Brian Racky had actually left 
uh, P&G with me. Um, he was one of our co-founders of the brandery and was uh, co-founder of Rockfish Cincinnati with me. Mm -hmm. um, so we're working out of Longworth Hall uh, in, you know, here in Cincinnati. And probably the, I think it was the first day the brandery class got there, um, you know, six companies that had come in. I said, hey, you're, you're going to be seeing a lot more of me because you, you, know, you thought I worked for P&G, but I actually just submitted my papers. So yeah. I'll, uh, I'll be working out here every single day because I have a job, but we'll, uh, it's a job that we don't have any clients yet. So we <laughs> have to go figure that out. For sure. So, so you're, you're one of the, the first few guests that we've had uh, here on the podcast that is specific ties to Cincinnati. And, you know, that's one of kind of the strategic things that we're trying with this podcast is to shed light on the technology and the entrepreneurship space in the whole region, not just in Lexington. So with, you know, both of those things being said, can you speak a little bit to the brandery specifically about what it's doing and what its mission statement is and how it's improving the Cincinnati community, as well as maybe that community in general? Yeah. So I think it's important to look at, you know, where Cincinnati's been from an entrepreneurship because mm -hmm. we're, we're on our, what I'd call our third wave at the moment. And okay. so, you know, the first wave of entrepreneurship in Cincinnati was in the late 1800s. Um, and I start there because the reason we have Procter and Gamble and Kroger and you know ten different Fortune mm -hmm. 500s was those entrepreneurs in the late 1800s when yeah. you know Cincinnati was at the fifth largest city in the country at that mm -hmm. time. Um, so it's those shoulders we we have to talk upon because it caused that for you know a hundred years that was the focus was those yeah. massive companies that were growing super fast and. Mm -hmm. You know, it's at one point P and G I think was twenty five on the Fortune five hundred, and Kroger was twenty two. Yeah, so you know, very fortunate in that regard. And they're but, absolute and, powerhouses in the in the city too, and they you know they kind of dominate everything. Exactly. So super important in many ways. Yep. And then we had the second wave of entrepreneurship, like many people during that dot com days, um, and that was important because there was the first wave of uh, this group called Main Street Ventures mm -hmm. that really had a lot of stuff going on. And that group was the one that planted the first seeds for what we'd be able to do the next wave. Um, and so they had, you know, for instance, a, a co-working space that was the classic incubator that a lot of companies came from. And that's actually where Pete Blackshaw, who's you know now the CEO of Centrifuge, he left P&G to go do a company called Planet Feedback, and that was at Main Street, uh, working in that space. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of those seeds were planted. Um, now, unfortunately, they all you know got wiped out with the dot com and some other things. Yeah. But it set the stage and it set that first foundation. And I say all that because then the third wave really started in kind of 2008. And it was sparked by Ohio doing the Ohio Third Frontier Program, uh, which was a, a funding mechanism for a whole host of different things in entrepreneurship. And one of the things it funded was for um, these entrepreneurial support organizations. And that was vital because it was those dollars that actually led to Cincy Tech, which mm -hmm. you know, really became the spark for a lot of the seed funding here in town. Uh, it's ultimately become the fund part of the funding for Centrifuge, and it was part of the funding for the Brandery. Yeah. So Cincy Tech started that late, call it 2008 uh, time period. Uh, the Brandery started in 2010. And entrepreneurship was pretty weak at the time. 
um, we knew we had a lot to do. And that's why when we launched the Brandery, you know, we were probably the 15th or 20th accelerator in the country. Um, and we decided to launch it really based on our history. And we knew okay. that branding and everything that went into that was our, our history and our strength. Mm-hmm. So that's why we called it the Brandery. Um, you know, we had the theory that, you know, you make beer in a brewery, let's make brands in the Brandery. Yeah. So, you know. Maybe not the most creative way, which is bad if you're your branding guys, but it worked. <laughs> I like that. So did it start as a, a pure accelerator or kind of, you know, what are some of the programs and, and how do they have they grown over time? Yeah, so pure accelerator. So okay. one of the first things uh, we did, I was uh, doing some corporate venture capital work for P&G at the time and had done an investment that was actually in uh, in Boulder. So okay. was going out there for board meetings and sat down with David Cohen right um, I think it was the first or the second class of tech stars and sat down with him, talked about, um, you know, what we had going on. And he was the one that really encouraged us to play to the city's strength. So mm-hmm. we based it straight off of what they did, role modeled pretty much every single thing off of tech stars. The one thing that's a huge difference that actually a lot of people don't realize was we made the brandry a nonprofit. Um, so mm-hmm. I go back to that main street days uh, there was a guy named George Malinsky at Taft Law who actually kept the 501c3 of Main Street Ventures alive. And when we were getting ready to launch it, um, we kind of dusted that off. Uh, it became Main Street Ventures, DBA, the brandery. And what we did was um, all of the equity, so the standard 6% we got in every company, it went to an endowment called Main Street Ventures. So none of us made any money, still have never made mon- any money off the brandery. Uh, we did it purely to grow this ecosystem and to start that pay it forward mentality. Um, so that's kind of that's what great. we got going uh, from day one. It also allowed us to tap into some interesting funding sources because of that mm-hmm. uh, corporate dollars and things of that nature. Yeah. So you know, that and... work, it's we've had eight classes, I think now, um, you know, over 85 companies gone through it north of $150 million raised for the companies. Wow. Um, and the really fun thing was we, while we were doing it to grow Cincinnati, um, we pretty strongly believed that if we made it feel like economic development, we'd never get the best companies to apply. Mm-hmm. And so instead, we just said we were going to make people fall in love with Cincinnati once they got here. And, you know, the end result over our first few classes about, I think it was only 10, 10% of the companies were from Cincinnati that got in. But 70% of the companies end up staying in Cincinnati uh, when the program was done. That's, That's awesome. Where, yeah. where were you pulling from uh, across the country? Any big spots? I mean, literally everywhere. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you look, you know, our first class, um, you know, our best company, that class, or at least the one best being they raised the most money, uh, was a company called Giftiki. Uh, they came from Houston, Texas. Um, so, you know, we got them the first class. Yeah. Uh, I think we pulled one guy from Chicago that year uh, and then Columbus. So that nice. was that first year. But then the second year, uh, which has actually been our most successful class in terms of n- number of exits, um, you know, the guys from Road Trippers, um, Jim mm-hmm. was from the UK, but was living in Savannah, Georgia when we pulled them up. Um, the guys from Marooney, which ultimately became a Hology, uh, which just exited as well. Uh, they were actually living in China at the time. Oh, wow. Um, but they were from St. Louis originally. 
So that one, you know, we actually accepted them almost on the spot because they actually flew from China to come to the um, intro happy hour. So I kind of knew that's at that time I was, I was betting on them no matter what. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, I was looking at you guys' website. It looks like you guys had 14, have had 14 acquisitions. And one of the core features of the brandry and the focuses is on, you know, branding, marketing, and design. Talk about why that's so important in an early stage startup. Uh, and how you compare that to the importance of the product um, or the the founding team and, and just kind of talk about that dynamic. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we wanted to distill early on was that a brand was about more than your logo. Um, it was the essence of what you were going to stand for and what your points of parity and what your points of difference were going to be. And so we drilled that in from day one because we actually thought that we could help companies get through the lean startup cycle quicker by really narrowing in on how they want to be differentiated versus just building everything. So it was a twist on the traditional kind of Silicon Valley approach, but one we thought would help in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, another factor of it is we just knew that there's so much amazing design talent here in Cincinnati that we could really use that to the advantage of our companies. and. You know, everybody's working on your ver a version of your idea somewhere in the U.S., if not the globe. And so if we could make you stand out and, you know, make this world-class looking startup, we thought that could give a leg up as well uh, to really get companies going. Yeah, uh, and that's sense. one of the reasons that, you know, one of the cool differentiated things we did, and it's, it's part of that choice we made to be a nonprofit, caused this to be a community effort versus just a couple guys doing an accelerator. Um, is that we actually got the entire agency world of Cincinnati became massive supporters of the brandery. So one of the things you got when you uh, were accepted was every team was matched up with an agency that donated help pro bono. Um, so you were getting you know Great. designers that was were doing graph design for P&G during the day, and they were designing your brand's identity on the nights and weekends, uh, yeah. all completely free of charge pro bono as part of that community effort. That's amazing. That's that's special. Uh, so talk about the business, business excuse me, <laughs> the biggest success uh, you think has come out of the brandry and why? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a few different successes. Um, so the the one that put us on the map from, I think, an attention standpoint was one that unfortunately the end result wasn't success, but um, it helped us as an ecosystem a lot was a company called Flight Car. Um, so they went through us, then they actually went out to Y Combinator, uh, ended up getting funded by General Catalyst, Andreessen Horowitz, Brian Chetsky is an angel, um, great company. They end up being acquired by Mercedes-Benz uh, ultimately. But that was one that really, I think, showcased to the community taking a bet on a very different type of company uh, because the three founders were actually all 18 years old when we accepted them. Wow. And I think everybody thought we were crazy in the mm -hmm. ecosystem. And, you know, it's a company that ultimately was valued over $100 million. Um, amazing. So that one was a great just from an image changing the view of the, I think, the community. But the, the two that are probably the biggest successes were our two exits over the last year, which was Road Trippers, uh, Road Trippers and Ahology. Um, mm -hmm. Because both of those businesses sold for about $50 million dollars. Um, but both were examples of what we could do for the ecosystem. Um, road trippers end up selling to what was essentially um, 
I don't want to call it a merger, but it was kind of a joint venture between a few different players that ultimately became TH2. And they mm-hmm. built, are they're building their North American headquarters here in Cincinnati. So oh, wow. great example of the startup could be a building blocks to something bigger. And then Ahology was another about $50 million exit. And they sold to Quotient. And Quotient is the mm-hmm. old coupons.com. And what people don't realize is Quotient has about 140 people here in Cincinnati. It's their second largest office after San Francisco. Um, and so with that one, they decide to keep Ahology here in Cincinnati. They're part of that team uh, that was already here. And they're just killing it and growing like crazy. So that one is, I think, also helping make the case of you know, big technology companies. You can buy some amazing companies and some amazing talent and open up secondary offices in in the region because of it. That's awesome. So so the brandery, I mean, we could we could have done a whole episode just about this. I think there's there's so many cool stories that have, have come out of that space and so many very real impacts on the Cincinnati community as a whole. But even that is just part of what you've done since you you left WPP. So going on from there, you know, it seems like you, you are an entrepreneur and it seems like you have a bunch of different things that you're working on right now. So let's kind of just dive into them. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's fun. So I left, uh, like I said, it was about a year and a half ago. Yeah. And when I left, one of the things I had going on was I'd actually just published a book called Predicting the Turn. Yep. And Predicting the Turn was basically about the life I just lived over the last, call it 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called, you know, the subtitle is the high stakes game of business between startups and blue chips. And, you know, the inspiration for that was that during the day I was working, you know, our clients at Rockfish were Ford Motor Company and Unilever and Kimberly Clark and, you know, go on and on. But then on the nights and weekends, I was working with companies like Flight Car that were trying to disrupt the automotive industry and car rentals and everything else. Mm -hmm. And what I found myself doing so often was being a translator between that world of blue chips and that world of startups. Um, because a lot of people have, haven't had their feet in both of those worlds. Um, so that's kind of what I found myself doing and making people realize that it's not one or the other, but the potential for both sides to work together can create some really big and meaningful things. Yeah, yeah sure. makes sense. So talk about you know predicting the turn. What is, what is the turn? Yeah, so the turn, uh, for anybody that's a poker player uh, in Texas Hold'em, you know, the turn is that uh, it comes later on and it's that fourth card that comes up and the turn is that moment that I think is a lot of time pivotal pivotal in a a poker game because if you're still in at that point you think you have a chance to win but it's where reality starts to set in (laughs) and so that's what the the terminology was played up on Um, Mm -hmm. and the the turn in the world of business is really kind of directed at all of those big companies that they're looking at the next year, five, 10 years, and they think the game that they've been playing is the game they're going to still be playing. Yeah. And what the turn is, is that moment when your industry and your business actually changes and you better realize the game is changing or you're going to get stuck, uh, you know, losing everything. So, you know, in the in the description of the book, uh, you know, you say that you know newer, younger companies abide by you know different set of rules. Um, I assume that that relates to how nimble they are, uh, how quickly they can move, that they're disruptive. Um, talk about how that 
um, you know, affects the, the big corporate world? What should they be paying attention to uh, and how should they pay attention to it and what should they do? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that so often happens in the world of big companies and the Fortune 500 is you're so used to how the game of business has been played that you think that's how it's always going to be played. Yeah. And, you know, so you look at something like, let's take, you know, personal care and how that's played out. You know, a company like Dollar Shave Club or, you know, Harry's, which conveniently, mm -hmm. you know, we're recording on the day they just sold for $1.3 billion. Um, <laughs> You know, those guys went about in a way that a P&G and others never could. And they never could because going direct to consumer wasn't a novel idea. But there was no way for an incumbent to do that because they'd have to go explain to Walmart and Target and other partners why they were selling direct instead of working with them. Mm -hmm. And that is an example of just a different set of rules that the big companies couldn't play by. Um, you know, there's a great class that Aaron Levy, the founder of Box, helped teach out at Stanford that's called the Industrialist Dilemma. And that's what those guys were stuck with, is how do we play in a way we know we should, but we just can't get rid of some of our historical things. But the other part of it is not realizing that how a consumer views your category is changing. Um, so at one point I got a call from one of the big beauty companies and they said, Hey, we're looking at our uh, premium line of skincare and it's been down like, you know, 20% every quarter for the last year, but the entire category has been down and we can't figure out where the share is going. Yeah. And it's because they were measuring, looking at Nielsen reports and all the traditional ways to look at it. And what we helped them realize um, when we started digging into it at Rockfish was, one, the category was shifting that it wasn't being bought just in Walmart and Target and Kroger, but it was being bought in dermatology offices and on Shopify websites and these places that weren't being measured. But then also what was happening was you had a generation of consumers that weren't just thinking about skincare was a cream that you put on your face. Yeah. But it might be a beverage that you drank, like an aloe glow that had benefits. And they couldn't wrap their mind around it because they never thought about skincare being anything other than a white cream that went in a bottle. Yeah. So so what are some ways? I mean, that, I think that's a really good example. And, and that shows that, you know, for every vertical, there's probably a hundred different ways that, that things are happening now in our, our niche stuff society. Um that are, are just different ways that, that consumers are consuming products and consuming information that these companies might not be aware of, might not be measuring, might not know how it's going to impact their bottom line. So in a general sense, what are some ways that, that large corporations and, and brands in general can, can keep their ear to the floor and, and know what's happening and be able to be there as those changes happen? Yeah. So I distill it down to this concept I call market intelligence. Mm -hmm. And Market intelligence is the so what of engaging with startups and engaging, okay. whether you're talking corporate venture capital, acquisitions, partnerships, anything across the board, it's the very art of engaging with startups gives you this ability to predict the how and the when the future of your industry is going to happen. And that's the so what that I think everybody forgets, because the problem is a lot of cases you know, a big company looks at an idea that's emerging in their space and they'll, they'll pick it apart 
and they'll show you every reason it's a bad idea. Yeah. And the problem with that is that it's actually not the job of somebody sitting in a corporate to say, is it a good company or a bad company? Because that's the job of a venture capitalist to make that decision. Is it going to be profitable? Is it going to be a good exit, et cetera? Mm -hmm. What a corporation should be doing is looking at all of the different things that are emerging and seeing can they figure out a market intelligence from it? Is there something they can learn? Um, so take you know subscription commerce back in you know 2010, 2011. Yep. There were 50 startups funded with $300 million, $300 million of venture capital. It shouldn't have been anybody's job to say, well, Dollar Shave's a good idea or a bad idea. Birchbox is good or bad, you know, so forth and so on. Yep. It should have been, okay, the very fact all of these companies are out there, that's an indicator that some very intelligent people are betting that there's something big going to come out of this. Mm -hmm. So if that is true... What does that mean for us? Will a shift happen in terms of consumers wanting to buy things on a monthly recurring basis? Mm -hmm. And guess what? It wasn't just bark boxes of the world that came out of that. It's the fact we now pay a monthly fee to Netflix and to Spotify and go down that list. Yeah. That subscription came about in a big, big way. And you know those subscription commerce companies, those were just the the canary in the coal mine uh, that indicated something was coming down the pipe. Yeah, if if I'm a big big corporation and I'm watching these things uh, begin to emerge, what's the decision look like between do I acquire them? Do I try to build that in house? Because you know, like you said earlier, you know, Harry's Dollar Shave Club, uh, snacking brands like Grays, they're all subscription models, um, and they ultimately are getting acquired. Uh, what's the diff what's what's the decision between you know acquiring versus building it in-house and, and how are they thinking about that yeah so i think it each individual decision comes down to a multitude of decisions with most of it being what's the strategy and objective of what you're going to be doing mm -hmm. and what's the culture that you have to be able to do it so you know harry's i think is a super interesting one to look at it that you know, the um, company that bought them is the owner of Schick and a few other companies. And they're making the founders of Harry's um, essentially, co I think it's co-presidents of North America. And so that was a talent acquisition as much as it was an acquisition of Harry's the business. Um, mm -hmm. And that was an, ex an acceptance and a bet by that company that we are going to view this as the future of where our business is going and bringing a talent that can lead us yeah. because we don't have that talent in our halls. Um, you know, similar example is, you know, people look at the jet.com acquisition of Walmart. Mm -hmm. uh, very intelligent people will tell you that was a $3 billion aqua hire because yeah. that was, yeah. we want Mark Lore to go defeat Amazon because he has a massive chip on his shoulder about how quidzy.com went down and he's going to go figure out how to do this. Um, so, yeah. you know, and they gave him a massive power to go off and do that. And it's, it's working in a big way. Yeah. So I think there comes down a lot of different things of what do you want to do? But personally for me, I think if you're just buying the business to buy the business you're probably destined for some failure 
if you're buying the business plus you're buying some talent that can and you're going to give that talent room to run and an ability to succeed that's when it's going to work out the best for sure so we mentioned subscription you know from several years ago becoming a big market trend that that now everybody is is jumping on the the cart with are there any trends that you're seeing in the market right now that are beginning to emerge that you think are going to be the next big thing in a few years and, and companies need to start paying attention to? Yeah. So for me, there's really two separate things I pay a lot of attention to. Um, okay. The one is I'm a pretty big believer that voice is the next operating system. Um, okay. It, you know, in the same way that desktop emerged and then touch emerged uh, mm. with smartphones that voices that next operating system. Yeah. And I very specifically use the word operating system because anytime an operating system changes for consumers, there are incumbents that we never thought could die that end up dying because they miss that switch of an operating system. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Yahoo was one of the biggest companies in technology. Yeah. They missed the shift to touch with mobile and they're gone now. For sure. Uh, you know, we forget that Facebook IPO'd and then stock dropped over 50% because people believe they'd missed that same operating system sh uh, switch. Yep. So, you know, that's, I think, a very important one that, you know, it's why Google has to win in the switched operating uh, because the world of search that they live so well on, that doesn't right now live in the world of voice very well unless they can figure that yeah. out. I think someone needs to figure out the the UX of voice in general and and how humans can best interact with these platforms because I think right now it's a little clunky, but as that gets refined, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, exactly. And that's any early operating system. Yeah. You know, think back to that first iPhone. Uh, and hell, it's actually before that. Think of uh, you know, the first efforts in smartphone, mm -hmm. iPhone 1, because they figured out that UX. For sure. So you said there were two things. Is there another one besides voice? Yeah. And then the second one is the shift to uh, autonomous that we're going to see in the world of just mobility as a whole. Okay. Uh, because of you know the choices that are made and the businesses that have lived and died because the world of self-driving uh, that has existed, that's going to be a massive shift that's taking place as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a, a great post by Benedict Evans, who's at Andreessen Horowitz, that he talks about this concept of second order consequences. And what he goes into is thinking about all of the things of society that revolve around the fact that America and you know the world, but America in particular, is a culture that drives ourself places. Um, you know, he shared that there's one study that shows that in Los Angeles, you know, there's building codes are about um, square footage dictates how many parking spaces a condo building and other things need yeah that that estimates that if you eliminate the need for parking garages in condos the cost of housing will go down 20 percent in los angeles um wow which is kind of crazy or yeah. yeah uh you know he talks about like you know gas stations have convenience stores because that's how they make money you make no margin off of uh gas if you sell it well think about how much uh, business Frito-Lay, Anheuser-Busch, and Altria do because of convenience stores. Mm -hmm. Well, if we don't have those anymore, um, what's going to happen? So things like that, the world of autonomous, I think everybody's looking at, oh, autonomous is a cool thing for automobiles. 
Yep. But we're actually not thinking about the second and third order consequences of what that choice is going to be yeah. if you know, a computer is dictating how we get to work versus us choosing that I'm going to drive this way so I can stop at a Starbucks. Yeah. Uh, that's, there's some massive changes about to come down. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah those are some great insights on autonomy. So I want to kind of jump back to voice because one of the things I'm all, I've, always, I've been curious about since I've been tracking voice is what does advertising look like on voice? Because as a consumer, when you speak uh, and you use voice, you're getting a direct answer. Normally you're getting one answer. At least that's how it is right now. So in the world of you know CPG products, when I say, hey, Alexa, give me some toilet paper, you know, what, what does that advertising space look like? And, and what is that answer going to return uh, in your opinion? Yeah, I think that's where things get really interesting of what they could be. Um, yeah. So, you know, one, I think there's, you know, probably a, the fact we're going to go back a little bit to the world of radio um, that will come out, that there's a very easy way to see that, that, you know, every morning when I, um, you know, we've got uh, one of those built in Alexa in our closet, actually in the light switch. And it's one of those echo eco B switches. And every morning when I walk in, I say, you know, Alexa, good morning. And I have a routine that runs that talks about what's the weather today. It plays the NPR news, et cetera. <laughs> right from your light switch. Yeah, from my light switch, which <laughs> I love. Um, but, you know, think about that. It's pretty easy that based on what that weather comes up, you know, could Amazon be advertising something at that time of, hey, Dave, it's, uh, it's going to be raining today, so make sure that uh, you bring your umbrella cur courtesy of Isotoner. Mm -hmm. Like Things of that nature, I think, could play out, which mm -hmm. can seem cheesy, but it's relevance and moment of time uh, that can definitely play out. Yeah. So I think we'll see stuff like that uh, that will come in. But it also becomes a big question of, do you believe in the good of Amazon or the bad of Amazon? Um, because if I say, you know, Alexa, order me paper towels, how's Amazon deciding what paper towels I want? Are they doing what's good for the consumer and they look at my purchase behavior and send me bounty because they know that's why I purchased before? Or do they send me Amazon Basic because that's what they make the most money on? Yeah. Or do they put out for bid just like, a, you know, a Catalina or something does in, in store right now and whoever spent the most money to buy paper towels that month is the one that gets shipped to me. Yep. So, so you're doing all of that with predicting the turn. I, I that's imagine that was a crazy process to write the book, but now that it's out there and you're promoting and you're speaking, you know, kind of how else are you filling your time? What else are you doing? Yeah. So the, the really fun thing is, uh, you know, my world kind of gets split in, you know, three ways. It seems like everything in my life is kind of that way. Um, so I've got the book is <laughs> one part, but then yep. uh, the other two parts I fill my time in. Uh, one, I've taken the lessons that I learned as doing the CMO role with um, Rockfish and then also the experience I've had as an investor working with a lot of companies. And I've been doing a lot of what I call executive marketing coaching. Yep. And this has been uh, working with various uh, companies to help them figure out what is their marketing strategy and what does their marketing organization need to look like? Because you know, one of the things I found in a lot of companies, they hire tactical marketers early on. So they hire their search person and their content and their demand gen. And then one day they wake up and realize they need something to stitch all of that together. Yeah. And they don't know, do they have somebody on their team that could step up and be that leader of marketing? 
do they go hire somebody from the outside to be the VP of marketing or the CMO? Mm-hmm. And so I get involved and help companies figure that out. Um, and where I think I enjoy myself the most is when I find that they've got somebody amazing on their team that they just need some mentorship and some coaching yeah. and some guidance. And I can help them reach that next ring in their career mm-hmm. um, because startups aren't, unfortunately, aren't fortunate enough to have the training that we got at a PNG. So for sure, you need people to help you invest in their development and their training because in a startup, there's always so much going on that training and improving yourself usually is the last thing on the radar. Yeah. And even operational stuff, like how the best to communicate and things like that, that are training beyond specifically doing the actual job, but just kind of scaling in general are just so backseat because you have to be nose to the ground. Yep. That's exactly it. So been spending my time doing that, which I absolutely love. That's been really fun. And then the final thing I've been getting to do is, yeah. you know, roll up my sleeves with those companies where I'm an investor. Um, mm-hmm. You know, over the years, I've done a lot with, you know, different venture funds, both as an LP and an advisor, and then, you know, angel investments and venture investments through a, a vehicle called Vine Street. Mm-hmm. And finally, I have the chance to spend more time with those companies and really dig in and help out with, you know, the same things I'm doing on the consulting side, but doing it to help make some of my investments be a little bit more successful. That's awesome. I feel like that's got to be some really fulfilling work. Yeah, that that part's a blast, um, especially those that I can get really more involved in. Um, yep. And I've been doing ones that are very disparate. So on one hand, uh, you know, good Kentucky company in Braxton Brewing yep. uh, is one Love that I've worked with. Oh, the uh, the the graders uh, collaboration flavors are amazing. That that one was a fun one. Uh, you yeah. Know, it what made that one so special too is you know graders. It's a I don't know how many generations now family owned, but I think it's five or six generations. Yeah. And you know Braxton, the co-founders are a father, son, uh, and well, two sons. So okay. you know, the I didn't youngest know brother is the head brewer. The older brother is the CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, so two families working together just makes that one a ton of fun. Yeah, for sure. That, that's really cool. I actually didn't know that there was a, a family operation at, at Braxton. That's really cool. And I think adds a special kind of flavor, you know, not to be, no pun intended, <laughs> with the beer. Yeah, no doubt. It's, uh, no, what's fun about that is, uh, so Jake Rouse, who's the CEO, Yeah. Um, he was actually uh, going to come work for me at Rockfish as uh, my business development lead. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting down and he was talking about that, you know, he had this uh, younger brother who was 20 years old uh, that was working at Hofbra House and had just won uh, the best homebrew in the in the city uh, at oh, wow. Rockfest. And I was like, well, I, I think you probably should go do that instead of come work at me That's at Rockfish because awesome. yeah. you're going to have a lot more fun. Especially that time a handful of years ago when that market was so hot. Yeah, without a doubt. So that, that one was a fun one. Um, so yeah, so I'm getting to work with stuff like that. But then on the flip side, um, you know, another company I'm on the board of directors is a really cool company up in Chicago called Hunt Club that is trying to disrupt the executive recruiting space. Mm-hmm. And the fact that recruiting is a pretty broken system mm-hmm. that a, has a way to do a lot better, especially for high potential talent going to high growth companies. Mm-hmm. So how are they solving that issue? What are they? What's their product? Yeah, so what's really cool that they do is they have a network of influencers. So folks like all of us that do a lot, um, you know, with a lot of different people. 
And what they do is that network serves two different roles. Um, so one, they serve a role of a connecting because, you know, if somebody was to reach out and say, hey, you know, do you think Nathan would be good for this job? You you reaching out and saying, hey, Nathan, somebody reached out on this job. I think you'd be good for it. Would you like to learn? Works a lot better than a random person calling you that's a recruiter and hoping you'll listen at that moment. Um, because, you know, mm-hmm. those calls a lot of times fall at the bottom of the radar. So yeah. one, they get that part. Um, but the second part you get from that is you get a subject matter expert that, you know, if you want to hire a VP of marketing, well, what do you want? Do you want a marketing person that's a brand person, a performance marketing, a communications? Like, what strength do you want? Mm-hmm. And the influencer network that Hunt Club has is actually people with that subject matter expert. So yeah. wow. a, a VP of marketing or a CMO recommending another person for that type of role is going to be a lot higher quality in terms of a potential fit. Um so that's what they do. And what's the power of it is they actually share in the capital from that. So if Hunt Club is doing a, a role and an influencer helps recommend somebody that ends up getting an interview or gets placed, they actually share in the revenue from that. Yeah. Which is a really that's cool really added benefit. Yeah, I like yeah, that model that's a lot. That's super interesting. At, at Avail right now, we're, we're trying so hard to find uh, sales talent uh, <laughs> here in Lexington. It's hard. And I can imagine if if we were able to approach a really uh, influential person within the UK community or the startup space in Lexington, uh, you know, the community here, I love that model of being able to share in the benefit of not only the capital, but growing the ecosystem uh, using yeah. an influencer. That's really, I love that a lot. Yeah, well, and the really cool part about it, too, is they, uh, you know, they're a technology company as well. So they adjust your network. And uh, what's interesting with that is, like, if you guys were to ask me, like, oh, hey, who would be a great VP of marketing for Atlanta? You know, I'd think of maybe the the two or three people that top of mind I know in Atlanta, or I might go look on LinkedIn and see who comes up. But what Hunt Club does is they take my network and they will surface ideas. And I've probably had four or five instances where it was somebody that I haven't talked to in three, four or five years that ended up moving to another city. So I would have never thought of them for a job in that city, Mm -hmm. but Hunt Club surfaced it. And I'm like, yeah, they're amazing. I haven't talked to them in five years, but they would be perfect for that job. And you have all the benefits of why I described on Hunt Club but yeah. for me, selfishly, it's a reason to reconnect with somebody that I might not have had a reason to do otherwise. Yeah. Um, and it's helped me rekindle a few different professional relationships that unfortunately had gone stale up until that moment. Yeah. That's almost like too obvious of a model. Like it, it's beneficial to everybody and it, it just seems like, of course, it's going to work. And, and that's usually the most successful ones. Yep. That's exactly it. It's uh, It always shocks me that no one had come up with it. But uh, yeah. Yeah, that's the power of almost every great entrepreneurial story. For sure. <laughs> yeah, so you're a super busy guy. You've got all kinds of projects. You've got all kinds of great um, you know, ventures. And you have an amazing experience, set of experience, a set of experiences you know, throughout your career. You know, let's, let's tie this all back to Cincinnati and how uh, you view the, the Cincinnati scene going forward and, and using all that experience and your ventures currently to kind of you know, foresee that. 
Um, what are some things that Cincinnati's doing really well right now and some things that you think they could do, do better? Yeah. So, I mean, end of the day, we're still in the early innings. Um, but you know, there's a, I've chosen to make this the place that's going to be my home for, you know, for a long, long, long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I go back and, you know, those early days of the brandery, you know, JB crop and Rob McDonald and Brian Racky and all of us that started it back then, we said, you know, we can either, uh, complain about what's not happening, or we can go do something about it. And luckily, we start doing something about it. Um, so, you know, the seeds are just planted. You know, we're probably in the second, third inning at best, uh, if you're talking about a baseball game. Yeah, a Reds um, game. Yeah, which <laughs> that's probably not a good comparison these days. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It might say we're losing right now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we're we're still early on. Um you know, what I think we're doing well is we've got a lot of volume and we've got a lot of interesting things going on. And the glimmers are out there for why a great person can take a risk and do something uh, and try something different. So those are going well. We've got some companies that Series A, Series B that are on a great, great trajectory. Um, you know, like Venley is an amazing company, just raised, you know, $10 million round from Battery and Hyde Park Ventures. Um, you know, guys from Navistone are doing awesome stuff. Like there's some really, really good things going on. Um, one of the things I'd say we're starting, but we need a lot more of is while we have those great companies, um, I think it was Kauffman Foundation did a study of, you know, the biggest predictor of somebody's success as an entrepreneur is if they've experienced a high growth company before. Mm -hmm. We don't have that company that's doing the flywheel yet. Um, yeah. We're not like in Indianapolis with an exact target and an Angie's list. Um, we don't have the cover my meds that like a Columbus did. Yeah. Um, we don't have the Groupon that Chicago did. So we don't have that company yet. Yeah. And so one of the things we need to do is import that talent. Um, you know, the good thing is it's where the Midwest has a, a good thing going for it that we can get boomerangs. Um, we can get that person that at 22 left to go somewhere and at 30, 31, you know, they've started their family and they're ready to get back. Yeah. That means we can bring back talent. Um, you know, my good buddy, Adam Weber was the CMO of Dollar Shave Club and we got him back here to be the CMO of EBTH because um, him and his wife had just had their second kid and they were ready to get back close to family. Mm -hmm. um, so we need more of that. We need more high growth talent that has experienced it. Um, so that's going to unlock a lot uh, across the board. Um, and then, you know, the last thing, and, you know, I think we just need more sources of early stage capital yeah. uh, in particular angel investors mm -hmm. um, that can really give that hands-on advice and have the time to play active board roles uh, because a Queen City or a, a Queen City Angels, a Cincy Tech, all of those are awesome. Yep. But we need more, frankly, I think, operators that have been at those high growth companies that can join and be angel investors and get involved. Yep. Be, be active in the startups themselves. Exactly. Because it's not actually about more money. It's about more investors that can give that great advice and be hands on. More smart money. I think it's it's a cop out. Every single city says they don't have enough money. Yeah. Um, even San Francisco and LA will say that. <laughs> so it's not about more money. It's about more hands-on investors. That's what we need more of. Yeah. So you just mentioned, you know, a few aspects of a startup ecosystem. 
Uh, and to kind of end this, I'd love for you to talk about, uh, we always love to talk about, you know, sharing stories. And that's what we're doing here with the Middle Tech. You had just mentioned how important talent is, how important capital is, and smart capital uh, that, that's come from these venture capital uh, firms. Talk about, you know, the storytelling and, and kind of what we're doing and how, uh, you know, hopefully we can affect and, and add to the scene up there in Cincinnati. Yeah, so I think that storytelling is a super important part. Um, you know, if you think about it, you know, the distance from downtown San Francisco to San Jose is the same distance that Cincinnati to Lexington, Cincinnati to Indianapolis, <laughs> et cetera. That's a really good point. Uh, but we never think of it that way, right? Yeah. You know, it's, oh, that's that place and this place. Like, mm -hmm. we need to connect the dots. And how does Cincinnati, Lexington, Louisville, Indianapolis – how do we really have that connectivity between those these cities that can play off the strengths of each other and help each other in big different ways uh, kind of across the board? So that's super important. And I think one of the things we need is to be able to tell the stories, but not tell it as a cheerleader, but tell it as a sharing of stories for everyone's learning and knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, because I think one of the downsides of an ecosystem is you only talk about the good. And when you only talk about the good, a startup and a founder is going to hit a bad moment, guaranteed. Mm -hmm. But if they've only ever heard good in the media and the stories, when the bad happens to them, they think they're all alone and that yeah. they screwed up and they could have done something different because this has never happened to anybody else. And that's what we have to realize is that by sharing the stories amongst different cities, we can help people realize that. And we don't have to be just cheerleading and pretending. Mm -hmm. We can all join and talk about it and build upon that. Yeah, you made this mistake and it's okay. Like you couldn't have seen that coming, but this is what we can learn. So maybe the next one can avoid that and we yeah. can improve upon it. Literally grow from mistakes. Exactly. Um, so, and I think that's the problem is like, well, I know you've heard it in Lexington because I'll hear it in Cincinnati of like, well, this city doesn't know how to deal with failure. So that's the problem. And it's like, no, we don't know how to deal with failure because we're not talking about the failures. So when it happens, somebody thinks that they uniquely screwed up. And it's like, no, like I know five companies that just did the exact same damn thing. It's okay. Like, yeah. let's talk about it. Let's share it. Um, so that's what I'm so excited that you guys are doing with Middle Tech because we need those platforms and we need people talking that and sharing it and getting that conversation out there uh, for everyone to have.